and we'll be reading through the entirety of Acts uh, 28 and uh, looking at this final portion of what we've been in um, for several months. In fact, in the midst of this, you remember we even preached a message series through James and then continued on and uh, persevered in bringing to this point of completion. And for me, it's been a um, tremendously helpful study in my own personal walk, as well as in just the view of the world in these times. And um, definitely can say that I won't look at Acts the same way, and I hope that positively you will, um, you will not either. And it's just a magnificent testimony that stands verifying to us that God indeed will conquer the world in his time. So let's look at chapter 28, and we're going to look at really an ever-expanding refuge that Paul experiences and that we can all experience in the Lord Jesus Christ going forward. The Bible says in verse 1, after we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta, and the native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius. He received us and entertained us hospitably for three, year, three days. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. And they also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to Puteoli. And there we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they had heard about us, came far as the forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. 
For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. And when they had appointed a day for him, they, had came, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law and from Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they've closed, lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. And therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And may God bless the reading and the preaching of his holy word. Amen. Well, I wanted to begin with a quote, in particular a quote that I think captures something of setting the stage at least. And that is something Matthew Henry wrote. He said, how many great men have made their entry into Rome, crowned in triumph, who were really plagues to the world. But here, a good man makes his entry into Rome, chained as a poor captive, who was a greater blessing to the world than any other merely merely a man. Is not this enough to put us forever out of conceit with worldly favor? This may encourage us, God's prisoners, that he can give them favor in the eyes of those that carry them captives. When God does not soon deliver his people out of bondage, yet makes it easy to them, or them easy under it, they have reason to be thankful. Well, I I say that quote in the sense that we see here what I'm calling of this text um, an ever-expanding refuge. And there would be no need for a refuge if the world was such a happy place. And in the first century, here in Rome, we find that, that Paul, by the end of this, is doing ministry without hindrance in spite of the world in which he lives. And in the beginning of the text, we also see that he's surprisingly um, able to do ministry without hindrance. And I think the message is very clear that that is being made by Luke. Because Luke is, is writing in such a way that helps us to see his point by beginning the story with this ministry without hindrance, that he has sort of a refuge in a very surprising way, in a place that's not expected. And at the end, 
the same thing's happening. He's in this place, and in a surprising way, he finds refuge. Because, after all, it doesn't seem like he should find refuge, given the circumstances, in either case. And it can be argued, too, from chapter 28, that there may be something of a chiasmus, which is really a literary device that's used to convey um, an even stronger message about what he's seeking to get across. We'll look at that um, in just a few moments. But for now, we find that there is indeed a chiasmus that begins in chapter 19 and ends in chapter 28. And the chiasmus is a Hebrew form of poetry that basically uh, develops similar ideas on both sides into sort of a mountain center. And the way that we see biblical writers would write is they would focus on the center. Now, we, we, we don't exactly do that. We oftentimes seek to bring everything to a final conclusion with that being the, the, our point. And we just take a long time to get to the point. And you're saying, uh, Pastor, I wish you would get to the point. Well, it's easier said than done with um, the amount of verses we're, we're dealing with here. Uh, but the idea is that when biblical writers are working through what they plan to say, what they plan to write, they have an intentional focus that's embedded into the center of their narrative. And it can go for many chapters. It can go over, um, like in this, chapter 19 all the way through 28 is a literary unit. And there's actually a, a central point, and that central point may be surprising, and, but it's very, very clear. And it's clear only because we notice the details. The world falsely has taught us, unfortunately, that the devil's in the details, but the truth is God is in the details. The devil always wants to take the place of God, so we shouldn't be uh, wondering about that. But God is actually in the details here. And the clue is found in a note that shows up in verse 11. It speaks of the twin gods that are on the head of this ship. These two gods were meant to be guardians of the sea, to protect the sailors on the sea, to keep them safe, to be a a refuge for them when they went out onto this dark and dangerous sea that we've seen the results of just in the past chapter. And these twin gods were placed there as expressions of faith in these gods for safety. Now, you would say, what does that have to do with the narrative? Well, it has everything. It's not a superfluous detail, meaning it's not a, an added extra. It's an important detail. Because Luke has repeatedly had an infatuation with the number two. And here we have again showing up in the text two. You have twin gods. Now the implication of that is yet to be meted out, but I want you to just simply observe for us to be able to understand what he's saying the two that shows up again and again actually has a pattern that goes back to 
the 19th chapter in verse 22. And there we see that um, there were in that place, having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So that's your first mention of two in chapter 19. Um, And then if you go down just a little bit further in 19, you'll see that Luke mentions again. But when they had when they had recognized that he was a Jew. For about two hours, they all cried out with one voice. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And there's this mention of two again. Now, the point of all this is, again, it's not superfluous. It's not an extra we know that when, when Luke wrote, because of the pattern that can be seen in the text, that he actually has outlined this whole section based on these markers. Now, the, the next matter of two is in chapter 21, and we find um, dropping down, I believe it's verse 33, where we say, then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. There he is again, indicating to us this matter. When he moves beyond that, um, we come to what is the center of the chiasmus, the mountain. It goes up and it goes down. So if you imagine on one side, 19 up through 23, we find these mentions of two. That's his outline. The center, what is it going to be? Well, it's a mention of three twos. And it's in verse 23, 23. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. On the other side of that, which is the center, and let me explain what what the center means. The center means that what Luke is doing is he is intentionally telling this story so as to show Christianity is legitimate and is no threat to the state or civil authorities. Everything he's writing is to set forth the legitimacy of Christianity, its legality, and its non-threatening presence to the civil realm. That Rome need not be threatened by Christianity. One, because it is simply the flower of Judaism. It has already been legalized. And you had to have a legal ability to operate as a religion in Rome. And there's no correction of that. What Paul does is he proves that it is the flower, the fold, the fulfillment of Judaism to show its legitimacy in a Roman civil society so that that Roman civil society would see Christianity is not a threat to them. And it's important, especially in these days, that that would be seen. And Luke's making the point of that. That's what he's about. 23-23 shows this complete protection provided by Rome for Paul, representing the Christian faith. Well, after that, it goes um, downhill, if you will. 
um, not in a, a negative way, but in the sense of the chiism. And we find that we see in chapter 24 and uh, around 27, it says, when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And so we see the two years. Then the second uh, two that shows up is in our text, 28 verse 11, where we see the pagan folly, and then chapter 28, 30, where we see the refuge. Now, I've just gone through that. I don't expect you to know all these things until you're told about them, but the first three twos that I've mentioned have a pattern that matches the other three twos. One is unhindered ministry. Second, pagan folly. And third, a, a just, justly, um, uh, justly, unjustly bound. Um, and so you have that three thing, uh, unhindered ministry, pagan folly, and they're unjustly, he's unjustly bound. And then on the other side, he's unjustly bound. There's pagan folly, which is where the two twins on the front of the ship is, and then unhindered ministry. Now, the main thing I want you to follow, though, is the unhindered ministry. We start out in 19 with it. We end all the way in 28 with it. We start out in the beginning of the chapter with it. We end up in the end of the chapter with it. There's a clear message Luke's getting across. He is able to set forth Paul as being non-threatening to the civil authorities. He's going on doing ministry, even under their protection, if you will, and does so the way the book ends, carrying that on for at least two years. And the point being made of that clues us into the fact that Christianity is able to have a refuge to be able to do unhindered ministry when we also can prove from Scripture that it is not a threat to the civil authorities. It's not seeking to overthrow the civil authorities. It exists in its way of a kingdom with a king that isn't, it isn't physical, like going to a physical place and setting up a physical king on earth and looking for some physical kingdom. But Christianity is being proven that it is a spiritual kingdom that arises in the hearts of men who have been genuinely, radically transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. No, it isn't a threat to any kingdom that's on earth. It is their chance at peace. It is their chance at welfare. Anywhere the Christian message is gone, it changes the world. This is the way God conquers the world. This is the way God changes cities, nations, peoples. He does so through a spiritual means of changing people like Paul and helping them to be able to defend the gospel message as a non-threatening kingdom 
to the states in which they live. And it's a complete testimony. It is a sufficient testimony that Christianity is not a threat to the civil sphere, but is is to the civil sphere their hope, is their only hope. And so I want to work through the text having laid that foundation. We see after they were brought safely through, we learned that the island was called Malta. Malta literally means a place of refuge. And the native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire, welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold, and Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks. And think about the humility this took. It, it, almost, it almost appears, if you didn't know the rest of the story going on here, it almost, if you didn't know that he was with change, you would, you would think the man's free, and, and you see here he's, he's acting and he, it reads like he's just free and he's, and he's humble. He's gathering sticks to put on a fire. And he's serving. And, and imagine that, just the humility that it took. He's gathering and he, he gets a bundle of sticks, he puts them on the fire, and a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. And evidently the, the vipers... I'm, told by scholars researching this that you you have this snake inside the wood and it was obviously cold and it became dormant and jumps out and fastens onto Paul. And some people say, well, yeah, this, is the, this invalidates the Bible completely because vipers don't hang on to anything. Well, this one did. This one did. And there is testimonies that of vipers hanging on to something, whether it be because they have caught themselves, their fangs have caught themselves in a way that they can't get loose. And I heard a story of one tell um, in researching this that there was a story of a, a man who actually had a viper and he, he grabbed hold of his boot. And when he grabbed hold of his boot, well, guess what? It, its fangs got stuck into the, the boot and it couldn't get loose. And so here's this man and in one way he's protected because it didn't penetrate all the way in. But in another way, the man's got a snake on his boot. So picture yourself in that situation. You have reasons to thank the Lord at Thanksgiving this year, don't you? That you don't have a snake hanging from your boot with its fangs caught in it. It's just all how we look at life, isn't it? Well, Paul had indeed a viper hanging from his hand. And no doubt, they said he's a murderer then. They interpreted that such an action superstitiously, mystically, was evidence that justice, meaning a God named justice, scholars believe, they were saying justice is judging this man, and so they're just waiting for the judgment to carry out. And it's interesting, isn't it, that, that people still kind of have this idea, this God of justice, this God, of, this kind of a, 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 a karma, if you will, this idea of, that people will get their due and they, they interpret events, bad events, that the person must have done something wrong. We know better than that, especially after studying Job, you see that definitely circumstances don't indicate necessarily a person has done evil just because they're suffering. It rains on the just and unjust. That's not a definitive way to interpret life's tragedies and difficulties. 
That's really a, a wrong way to do it. Well, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. A lot of uh, snake handling churches take this text in Mark 16, the latter portion, which I think gives validity to the fact that it is authentic, um, that this is a fulfillment of what Jesus said would happen. But it wasn't a prescription for churches to carry on a snake handling ministry. And I have no issue and no worry and absolutely no fear that that would ever be the case in our congregation. Just on the basis of a few people I know that don't have a very great love for snakes. Well, if it was up to you that do, then, you know, maybe, maybe. But the idea is that this is not a prescription for what some churches practice in this manner. Because, again, if you view the completion of this book as the completion of the foundation of the Christian church, that what God is doing here is a completion. It isn't a prescription to carry on. The foundation is laid here. And if you believe apostles have uh, ceased to exist at their death, and there was a limited amount, you cannot go on carrying out the things that only apostles were given to do miraculously. You have to rest in the foundation. And it is utter nonsense to have an idea of that this book needs another chapter in it or that this book prescribes to us some type of future vision about carrying on uh, the spirit of Acts and the spirit of Pentecost here. That's absolutely so foreign from the purpose of the book. This is a foundation book. It is not a prescription book. We see here Luke simply describing as a historian what happened. And what happened was a miracle. The snake attached, the snake penetrated, and Paul didn't die. And so here he is among these people that are unusually kind. And they waited a long time. don't know what the long time meant there, but they waited a long time and they, didn't, they saw that no misfortune had come to them, to him. And what do they do? They, the word here is um, the word for repent. Metanoia speaks of to repent. They repented. They changed their minds about their interpretation. And they said, our interpretation must be wrong. And to change their minds about the negative, their interpretation must be wrong then they began to reinterpret and say, this man must be a God. Now, I don't believe from the context of the text that in any way they are saying he's a God to be worshipped, like chapter 14 did, because they don't do that. I think it's better that they're saying here that this man is of divinity. This man must be of God. This man must not simply be, just humanly speaking, ordinary. And would that God would see God, would that, would that we see God's apostles were extraordinary men. And they lived in an extraordinary time and they did extraordinary things. At least this group of people recognized the divinity. And would that God would cause his church today to recognize the awesome holiness that we have been given in Christ. 
the sanctification definitively that we have been made. And would that God also make the world see Christians as having a sense of divinity about them. Um, this, is, this is not all bad, I'm seeing. I, I, don't, I don't think they're setting up to worship Paul. But it seems they have a view of, of Paul that's a lot more correct than what it was. Now, in the neighborhood of that place, the lands, um, or the, the man of the island, the chief, chief man of the island, Publius, he, he received and entertained them hospitably for three days. So you had Paul and Aristarchus and uh, the companions are there. And evidently, a, a lot of people from the ship that we saw previously, he entertains them for three days. He's hospital to them. It's, it's a replication of the Christ-like journey of ministry and passion, isn't it? Well, Paul was, and he's, um, Jesus, if you remember, he would, he would be in a place and someone of, of high repute is there and you'll find uh, soon after somebody, a child gets sick or dies and you see Jesus coming in healing, raising. It's this kind of thing happening in Paul's ministry. Now, Paul's not Jesus, but Paul is, is doing ministry in the likeness of Jesus' pattern. He's, he's uniquely, specially called to carry out these things. And so what you see happen is um, the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, he healed him. And, and so what happens is when, he, when these, this had taken place, all the rest of the people, just like you see in Jesus' ministry, all the rest of the people uh, on the island who had diseases came and were cured. So you have this, it's almost like Jesus is back on earth. And if you remember, when we began the book of Acts, it says this is what Jesus began to do and teach. And so we see that in Paul, he's concluding the foundation of this to show that not only did Jesus heal, but He has given His apostles the ability to heal and it will validate everything that they say that it is authentic and true and authoritative on the Christian church and if you would, all the world. It wasn't, again, so that we go on doing these things. We can't do these things. This is not what we've been called to do. This is what Paul did because he was called to do it. And it says they honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. Now, what a surprising refuge. You know, when the disciples were on a boat with Jesus, and the winds and waves are battering them, and they're scared and they're afraid, they, they begin to think, Jesus, don't you care about us? And then he speaks of their faith or lack thereof, he stills the sea. And then he goes over to the other side and it just gets worse. He goes to the other side. They don't find a place of refuge. They find a demoniac man and uh, they end up having to deal with, with him. It would be expected for Paul to get off the boat with his companions and face more difficulty. What's surprising is he gets off the boat and there's this wonderful, surprising 
place of rest and refuge in a place that's called after that thing, a place of refuge. And because we know at the end of the chapter, he's saying the same thing. And we know because the beginning of the section, the end of the section, he's saying the same thing. He's saying there is a place of refuge surprising to the people of God like this in the world. It can be had. And it was had here. And Paul seems to be quite at rest. He seems to be quite, uh, he seems to be quite peaceful. And he doesn't seem to be up in arms. He doesn't seem to be worried. He prays. He goes to God. He seeks the Lord. He's carrying on his ministry wherever he is, whether it be in peace or whether it be in war. He's continuing on. But there's a note, this unusual kindness, this care, this hospitality, surprisingly among these. And then after three months, they set sail in a ship that had wintered on the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as figurehead, putting in at Syracuse. And we stayed there for three days. And this is where, again, this is, not superfluous. The message here is indicated by the fact that Paul doesn't call out the gods. He's on the boat. He's at rest. He's at peace. Think about it. He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't say you got false gods on there. In fact, if you, if you begin to realize this throughout the whole book of Acts and the entire ministry of Paul, he's never doing that. He's never saying, look at your idolatry. Only in one case where he's in a place, he goes and he finds a place that gives him a segue to speak about the God they didn't know. But not even there. What does he do when he looks at the idols? He weeps over them, but he doesn't rebuke any of them. He doesn't call out and say, you idols. He doesn't go smash any of them. There's two idols on the boat that speak about providing refuge and protection for the people. And he's just been through a great shipwreck and he knows what protects the people. And yet he doesn't say a word. Luke mentions it. Luke says he's on the boat with the twin gods. And the footnote of the ESV is helpful here because it actually indicates if you go there and you're in English Standard Version, you'll see the note, the note there in speaking about the twin gods. It's a number six there in my Bible under verse 11. And you drop down and it says the Greek gods Castor and Pulix. They had names. And they would be those who would provide a guardianship and a protection as sailors believed as they went out. Well wishes. It might be kind of like well-meaning people would do. They'd give a, a necklace with a saint on it. And, and they say, this will protect you. They send their son or daughter off to college. Wear this. This will protect you. It's kind of a charm. They put these on the boats as, as a symbol of protection. Paul knows they don't protect anybody. Why doesn't he rebuke them? Why doesn't he say, these false gods you're trusting in are false gods, they're no gods at all, and here's the true God. But that's not what he does. He's completely at rest on the boat. Nowhere is he ever trying to call out idols. Nowhere is he ever calling out the pagan idolatry of the land, but it's there, the folly. And I think it sends a clear message. A clear message of how God conquers the world. 
Again, we've talked about it's a spiritual kingdom. It's not a physical kingdom. It affects the physical, so we don't throw that out. But it's a spiritual kingdom. And Paul tells us and teaches us here, or Luke does, by, his, by the Spirit of God, teaches us here that the way, the way that Paul operated in ministry was simply this. He didn't spend his time calling out the idols of the world. He spent his time preaching the hope of the gospel. He had a refuge that was certainly experienced in certain places, but his greatest refuge was the Lord. He had no need. He didn't feel any need. He didn't have any commission. He didn't have any command to deal with that. The way the world would be conquered would not be by overthrowing the Roman government. The way that the world would be conquered wouldn't be by calling out the idols of the pagans. But according to the text, the way the world will be conquered will, by, will be by men who have a refuge in God. Who understand that they are preaching the hope of the gospel in this world. And that the hope of the gospel in this world is their focus and it is their message and it is their commission. They don't spend their time calling out the idols of the pagans. The pagans would expect us to call out the idols. You see, strong churches, strong Christians aren't going to be calling out the idols of the pagans because they know there's only one God. There's only one true God. And those figureheads on a ship that you're on mean nothing. And you're going to get nowhere telling them that they have idols on the ship. They know that. The only thing that's going to change people spiritually is going to be preaching the hope of the gospel. That's what changes the world. Not our focus on the world's idols. And I think that Luke's giving us a clue. I believe the Holy Spirit's giving us a clue because all Scripture is inspired by God and it's breathed out by God and useful for teaching, reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. And we see here that the teaching is this, that we are to be calling people to know the hope of Jesus Christ. Reproof. Stop focusing on the idols of the pagans. Correction. Make sure you start focusing on the hope of the gospel. Training in righteousness. Keep yourself on that path. Don't leave it all the way to the end. And know that God provides refuge to such men, even in the darkest of times. You know, uh, to me, the whole book of Acts is worth that. The whole, book, the whole book of Acts is worth getting that one message. It, it's the whole reason the book is really set forth. You have two witnesses, Peter and Paul. You have Paul that's clearly set forth with a pattern from chapter 19 through the end of the book to show us how to live in such a world, how the Lord will conquer such a world. And if he did that in the first century, the church will continue to have an adequate witness as to how the Lord will conquer the world in its consummation. And it will be because the Christians actually get serious about preaching the hope of the gospel 
and they stop getting sidetracked by focusing on the idols of the pagans. And to me, that was gold. It hit me this week. Treasure and glory that frees you up and gives you a place of rest. Almost like Spurgeon would say, all you got to do is let truth out like a lion from a cage. It does its work. Unless you got a broke lion. (laughs) But the Bible's no broke lion. The Bible's a two-edged sword. You set it forth. When we hear the word rightly preached, we hear him. We hear Christ. And Christ says things oftentimes quite unexpected, quite outside of our human wisdom. He says things that come from heaven and help us to live heavenly on earth. Well, we go on to the time that he spends being strengthened by the church. They were found brothers, and we were invited to stay with them for seven days. And in this, it says, we came to Rome. And the brothers there, they heard about us and came as far as the forum of Appius, three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. Now, I wanted to stop there in the sense that I think there's a point to be made about the fact that they were strengthened and took courage when they were around the brothers. We have, first of all, a refuge that's in a very unsuspecting place, surprising place, that Malta would be this place that Paul's entertained and has unhindered ministry. He's not being attacked there. And then the second place we see him, we see him on a boat, and he has a refuge on the boat in spite of all the paganism. But there's nothing like, nothing that compares to the courage and strength that he finds as he lands in Rome. And he's there for at least a Lord's Day, seven days. And he was able to thank the Lord. He was able to grow in thankfulness. He was able to grow in courage. Why? He's around God's people. He's around the people of God. This is where things make sense because this is where the words proclaim. This is where we hear him. This is where God gives us rest. This is where he's able to go on doing ministry because he's, he's with the brothers. The Christians are made to be with the brothers, to be strengthened by the brothers. When I say the brothers, I mean the sisters too. Brothers and sisters in the Lord that are called out and gathered. What is God doing in the world today? He's doing the same thing He's been doing from the very beginning and that He's gathering His elect people into the church. That's what he's doing today. He gathers you. He gathers me into bodies all through the world. He gathers us to be a people of God. To be covenant with one another. Because God has a plan to conquer the world and it's through his church. It's through the spiritual kingdom on earth. It's through the church of God. It doesn't mean that God's kingdom doesn't extend in every other area, every other sphere. It does. But the church is God's plan to save people, to bring them into a spiritual kingdom. And it's of no threat to the state. It's separate from the state. 
It'll change people in the state. But you're not going to go to the state and change the state by telling them about all their idols. Paul's very clear. The way you're going to change people, the state, the workplace, the home, isn't by pointing out all their idols. It's by pointing them to the hope of Jesus Christ. It's by showing them what changed you. It's about giving validity to the power of the gospel to change man's soul. And many people are worried about changing the cities of the world, but they can't conquer their own heart and their own sin. You conquer your sin and you'll change the world. You get a bunch of people in a church called brothers and sisters in Christ that are covenanting it together according to God's strategy that they're not in commission to go out. We're going to go and point all the idols out in our county. It's not our job. It's not wise. It's not what is prescribed. It's not even what's exampled. The people of God are called to conquer their sin in the city of their own lives and hearts. And by doing so, when you get people doing that, when you get people conquering their sin and sanctification, then and only then is the love of Christ shown to a city. And then and only then can a city actually experience the peace and realize that the church isn't a threat to them, but is actually their greatest hope. That's the way cities are transformed. It's when men get transformed. It's when women get transformed. It's when kids get transformed that the world begins to have hope that a city can be transformed. It's when the church is there because the church is the pillar and buttress of truth. And it has been given a specific role and a guardianship by God above that is not exemplified by anything physical, but is exemplified by the promises of the covenant of God to keep his people and not only to protect them and to protect the gospel message, but to see to it that this gospel message will go forth and conquer the nations. So, what matter? It matters. It matters. We have we have a resting place. There's, you say well, all these refuges for Paul. We have we have a refuge. It's called the church. We have a place we can rest. We have a place and people we can be with and be secure with. Well, after three days, he still can't let up on the Jews, can he? He wants them to know. He says, calls the local leaders of the Jews together, the religious Jews, and he says to them, brothers, still affectionate towards them, though I had nothing against your people or the customs of your father. In other words, I'm not a threat to you. I'm not a threat to your religion. I'm, I'm here to explain the fulfillment of your religion has come. And he goes back through somewhat of a story of a defense. He explains to them what had happened to him. He says to them that he was delivered as a prisoner to Jerusalem in the hands of the Romans. And they examined him and they wished to set him at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. There was a judgment already that his religion was legitimate. 
But there were Jews that objected, he said. There were people that didn't see it his way. And he was compelled then to appeal to Caesar, to appeal to the civil government, so that they would say that Paul is indeed Paul is indeed representing Christianity as a fulfillment of Judaism. It's a legal religion already. And so he appeals to Caesar, he says. And he says, I didn't have any charge to bring against my nation. This was not about me bringing any charge against the Jews. I wasn't a threat to the Jews. I wasn't a threat to their religion. But I was here to help them see the Christianity as a fulfillment of the religion. And therefore... I ask to speak with you because it is the hope of Israel that I'm wearing because of the hope of Israel. I'm wearing these chains and the hope of Israel is the Messiah would come. The king would come. He would take the Davidic throne. He would ascend to be there. And that's what we see has happened. And he's trying to explain this to the Jews saying their Messiah has come. Their response is we've not heard anything. Which is, again, surprising. Lots of surprises in the text. None of the brothers, and you think about it, all the way up to this point, it seems wherever Paul went, they found people to get there in order to harass him, but they don't do it here. It's, they don't even know. They don't go to Rome. So we didn't receive letters from Judea about you. None of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. So much so that they say we desire to hear from you. It's like the psalm, I think it says in the psalm, he makes his enemies to be at peace with him. They're wanting to hear from Paul. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. So they had awareness that Christianity was being spoken against, but they, they didn't have any legitimate reason as to why. They just knew that everybody hated it. And, um, and it ought to put a flag up when, when you have... Everybody hating something. A lot of times the person or thing is, is misrepresented, right? Sometimes, though, it's true. But you have to investigate that. So they, they go and they're willing to hear. And they appointed it a day and they even come with greater numbers. They come to his lodging. And from morning until evening, morning to evening, he expounded to them. And he testified to the kingdom of God trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and the prophets. Why law of Moses prophets? Because, again, he's arguing that Christianity is the fulfillment of Judaism. Judaism is complete in Christianity. And he has to argue from the Old Testament, and the whole of the Old Testament is represented by those three areas of writing. The scriptures were made up there of the law, and um, of the prophets, we would also say the writings, but he's, they're convincing them, he's convincing them, trying to from the Old Testament. And it says some were convinced, it wasn't all lost, some were convinced by what he said, others disbelieved, disagreeing among themselves, they departed. Now, there's a textual matter that shows up at the end of verse 28 where some add a similar verse to the manuscript that basically speaks about a disputing among the Jews. It's not an authentic part of Scripture. It's very well attested. It doesn't belong there. 
but we see that sufficiently that there was discussion up above. We don't know if it's trying to make the Jews look better by adding that in or what, but it's simply not there at the end of 28 when we get there. But here, the truth is, is that they're disagreeing among themselves. And they departed after Paul had made one statement. What was the statement that really, really did them in? Well, he quotes Isaiah. And by quoting Isaiah, and he says, the Holy Spirit, which gives, I mean, think about this. When it comes to the scriptures, he's saying the Holy Spirit said this. He's saying it's scripture. It's authoritative scripture from God above. And he quotes it, and in quoting it, saying through to, saying of your fathers to Isaiah the prophet, in quoting it to them, he's saying very clearly that Paul's ministry here is the fulfillment of the Isaiah prophecy. That what has been spoken to Isaiah, Isaiah's ministry is now coming to fulfillment in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. What is the fulfillment of that? Well, he said, if you go to this people, right, and say, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, turn, and I will heal them. And Paul's saying, that's what's happening here. Isaiah's ministry now is fulfilled. Now, remember the judgment in the beginning? You remember the judgment? The, the false judgment of the pagans? They say, oh, he must have done something bad. He's a murderer. He's going to die, and he doesn't die. They had the wrong judgment. They repented and changed their minds. But the Jews, unbelieving Jews, because Paul's a Jew who gets saved, right? But unbelieving Jews here, and not all of them, but it appears to be most of them, fall in the category that they have become dull of hearing. They've become hardened to the Word. They've become unbelieving more and more. The Word of God, it either softens the people of God again and again, making them more humble, more receptive, more attentive, or it hardens people. It, put, it puts calluses on their hearts. The more they hear of it, the duller of hearing they become. I wrote down a, um, just a statement, and I'll just summarize it in the sense that when God judges a people, He judges them most. I believe it's Thomas Watson. He judges them most when He doesn't judge them at all. In other words, we, like many pagans, begin to think instinctively that, oh, bad things happened to that person. They must have done something wrong. And we know full well that afflictions lead the Christian to cling to the Father. 
And, and to be afflicted, whether it be for sin or to be afflicted because of life's circumstances, only draws us nearer to God, makes us more sensitive to God. And what Watson is saying is that the worst kind of judgment is the kind of judgment where God does nothing to judge and lets the sinner go on. That's called the doctrine of reprobation. And he lets them go on in the trajectory of their desires and the bondage of their own will. And he gives them what they want. That's the worst kind of judgment. I think Luke's getting at that. So Paul concludes with what? He says, therefore, because Isaiah's ministry is fulfilled now to you, unbelieving Jews who have been made and rendered Unable to hear, unable to see, unable to understand. Your hearts are calloused. You will not believe and be saved. If you would, you would be saved. It's, it's an appeal to the Jews, if you would. It's not saying there's no hope for the Jews. He's saying there's an appeal here. Appeal to circumcise your hearts. Your calloused hearts are keeping you from hearing. And because if you would hear, you would be saved. And it says, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. What certainty? Why does he have that certainty? Because of the election of God, he has that certainty. God will save his elect through all the world, throughout all time. They will all be saved. We learned that the previous week. Not one will be lost. We have a shepherd. And the Lord's shepherd song there in 23 in the Psalter is meant for our lives, not merely to read at our deaths. It's a psalm for life. And he's saying here, the unbelieving Jews have fulfilled prophecy as they have not heard, just as Isaiah predicted. Now, because they didn't hear, it had a purpose. And the purpose was so that more people hear. The truth is, by people choosing not to hear, not to listen to Jesus, it never will impede the gospel and stop the gospel or stop the church. In fact, what will happen is because of their not listening, more people will listen. The world will, will be saved in the sense that the elect of the world, the people God has chosen before the foundation of the world, every one of them will be saved. He doesn't say they may listen. He says they will listen. How can he guarantee that except that he believed God chooses a people in the world and saves them and he knows they'll listen. He, of course, ends his time two whole years at his own expense. He welcomed all who come to him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God. And again, this is Rome. Rome actually at this point, the fulfillment of what we talked about with the twin gods, it's no threat to the state. It's not there to call out the state's idols. It's there to preach the hope of the gospel. 